0: So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Grace and peace be with you, my sisters and brothers, wherever it is that you may be worshiping today. Today, uh, we are in for a real grace. Uh, I cannot tell you how filled with hope I am about the conversation that I am about to have with two of my friends. Today, joining me on the platform for our sermon, for the message, uh, I have two friends that I'm going to introduce to you in just a moment. Uh, But before we do, let me give you a bit of an introduction uh, to what we've been up to these last uh, what eight weeks or so. We've been in a series called Resurrection, right? And what we've been doing these last seven or eight weeks, we've been making some pretty audacious claims. We've been saying that it is actually possible to experience a life of fullness and grace and hope. That there can be a life that is characterized by peace with one another and peace with God. A kind of reconciled life where there's a steadiness of heart and a a stability of mind. And we believe that because of the resurrection. And what we've been saying is that the resurrection is not really just some one-time event, but it's really an all-the-time invitation to a way of life, right? And that means that every day we are called, like Paul says, to die daily to some ego, to some self, to some patterns, to some sin, so that each day in our dying Christ may rise within us and we may rise to walk in a new way of life. In John 10, 10, he said, look, this is why I have come. I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. The truth that emerges, these especially these last couple of weeks for me, has been that that life I'm describing, the one that Jesus came to establish for all humankind, we have to confess that there are some obstacles to that kind of fullness of life that some experience that others do not. And if we who are called to live into life and to experience the fullness of life are actually concerned about our sisters and brothers and that all humankind might experience the resurrection then we have to be attentive to the reality that we are responsible to somehow pay attention to when a sister or a brother has an obstacle in front of them to living the life that Jesus came to provide. And something that has occurred to me recently is we've had a Hard week, right? I mean, it's been a difficult week for the nation, but the hard week we've had has only served to expose a hard history that for some it is an everyday reality, and for others it is a reality that emerges once the news hits a national cycle, right? And so you know that these last couple of weeks we've been talking and I've been sharing from my heart with you about these patterns that seem to emerge when something big happens, that makes national news. Here's the predictable pattern that we experience. Some crime, some, some act of violence or murder happens and, and we rage at that moment and we rage at the injustice of it. In this case, the death, the murder of George Floyd at the hands of four uh, cops who <laughs> more than behaved badly broke the law and violated the human dignity of a man it took his life. But here's what we do. We, we then center our rage on the action, all of us who have a heart. <laughs> but then what happens in peaceful protests begin to emerge. And in the context of peaceful protests, there may be acts of violence and rioting and looting that emerges, and now for good reason, we turn our energy against the riots and against the violence, and we rage against the violence because that serves no conciliatory end, right? But what I've been trying to say, as your pastors, trying to shepherd our collective consciousness, is that we need to serve and reserve the main energy of our rage for the thing that actually caused the reaction. And these days I'm convicted that maybe the best way to do that is, is not simply for white pastors to speak out, but for white pastors at times to close their mouths and elevate the voice of black leaders in the context that is predominantly white so that we may hear from trusted friends whom we love and respect to speak from a place of testimony, to speak from a place of experience so that it may penetrate the heart and get out of the head. That's exactly what we're doing here today. And I want you to meet two of my friends and these two men on this stage I respect and love and I'm grateful to call them my friend. And This is Damon Bird and Damon, uh, you may already know, Damon has been here at JCBC, has taught a Wednesday study. Damon uh, is the pastor at 316 Fellowship Church in Lawrenceville. Uh, but also, he's the husband of Rhonda Bird, whom we all love and adore. She's my executive assistant and keeps me between the yellow lines, Damon. Uh, so we're going to hear from Damon in just a moment. I'm grateful that you're here. And this is Ben Barnett, Dr. Ben Barnett, uh, and I go back to doctoral days. Yeah. We were in the trenches together uh, in seminars and writing labs and, and he has completed his doctorate at the same institution, McAfee School of Theology. And back when we were in one of our seminars, Ben, um, you were sharing from your experience, your spiritual journey and your, your experience in your blackness, the experiences that you have that I do not have. And you told the class, look, if any of you doubt, you're welcome to come take a walk with me, right? right? So earlier this week, I called Ben, and I said, Ben, I think it's about time to take that walk. And these men have, uh, have graced us by being present with us to share a little bit, and by the way, I did not mention Ben is the pastor of Bridgepoint Church in Marietta. And so take a minute, guys, just to give us an idea
1: who you are, where you're from, what you've been up to, uh, and then we're going to dig deep together. Greetings, greetings, everyone. Uh, it's my honor and privilege to be here, uh, Pastor Sean, Pastor been uh, grateful to be on this stage. I was really originally born in uh, Los Angeles, California. My dad was a pastor, my mom uh, a teacher, so it was in my blood. Mm. Uh, I was educated at Howard University. I studied at uh, Dallas Theological Study uh, as well. Uh, I'm currently pastor at 316 Church, as you said, and I'm also an adjunct professor uh, for Carver Bible College uh, at the current and present time. Mm. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, greetings, and it's uh, great to be here.
2: Uh, I, I was so glad to get your your phone call about taking that walk together, and uh, the opportunity to uh, to be here uh, in your your home and the place where you shepherd and pastor is a a great privilege for me, and I'm just grateful to be here. Um, as Sean said, I pastor Bridgepoint Church over in Marietta, Georgia. Uh, I was born in uh, Roanoke, Virginia, uh, but I've been in Atlanta. Uh, the last 28 years. And so this is where my spiritual birth and maturation really took place. And so I've been leading the Bridgepoint Church for about 25 and a half years. Um, you you talked about some of the highlights. The best highlight for me is my wife, Tammy. Okay. Got a wonderful family, uh, three uh, beautiful kids, 26, 24, and 21.
1: Mm. And, makes you kind of uh, old, you know? It makes me kind of old. Yeah, Hope I, right? I don't look,
2: <laughs> look as old. <laughs> um, But I've learned a lot, and so I'm just uh, grateful to be here. Um, I I graduated from West Point uh, about 30 years ago, uh, served in the Army for a while, worked in the corporate America for a while, and then uh, got the call to ministry back in January of 1995. And uh, it's been a ride ever since then uh, to include the time being here. So thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: Well, I'm grateful to not just share the space and some conversation with you as a co-laborer in the gospel, um, mm-hmm. and not only as pastors, shepherds of congregations who have a higher calling and a responsibility, but um, honestly, just as human beings. Right. To share a little space here to talk and to listen. And what I've been talking about with our folks during a couple of midweek messages and the last couple of times we've met for worship or um, we've, we've had worship remotely has been to address that sometimes the best thing that we can do and the most humble thing and most um, Christ-like thing we can do at times is to hush and to listen, Mm -hmm. to be still and to listen to the the word of the Lord, to the the, the prompting of the Spirit. But that comes through the relationships that we have. So in the spirit of a call to listen, to voices that may not be the dominant voices in our friend network, in in our downtime together, to listen to voices that have experiences that are different from our own. I think that's where transformation is possible. So today, I'm going to share some questions with these two men, and they're going to respond a little bit. We'll go back and forth. Uh, We'll have some fun with it. and, And at the end, I want you to stick around, because at the end, we're going to do like a Preaching blitz. We're going to go through Scripture, and we're going to we're going to kind of have just a preaching festival here. Uh, one minute sermons, right? So, the first thing I'd like to ask, uh, guys, is um, the way we've been talking about it has been. We recognize. I let me just use personal singular pronoun. I I recognize that there must be this two world experience that is among us, right? In which you have had to learn to navigate in two different worlds with two different sets of rules, two different arrangements to exist, to grow, to thrive, to become the men that you are, to raise the families that you have. And I just wonder if you could say a word or two, maybe give us an example or two about the kind of rules that you learned were different than the kind of rules I may have had to come through coming up the similar theological journey similar vocational journey, but certainly some nuances that we need to hear about. So tell us
1: a little bit about the different rules and the different journeys you may have had. If I may begin, first of all, let me preface by saying that I can only also speak from my own experience, uh, that I cannot speak representing uh, the entire race in this country, however, there are some things that are shared experiences that we have. Uh, Let me illustrate it this way, I was just watching CNN Uh, earlier this afternoon, and there was a particular commentator that was communicating to um, the world about his son Mm. and having to explain to his son what was going on. And he he, he made an image that really struck me. He said, he looked in his eyes and he saw the light go out. Mm. And for many of us, Mm. again, I can't speak for everyone, you have that experience either at some point when you're a child or during your journey as you're uh, maturing, that the light goes out, the light of being an innocent, happy child, experiencing life, having fun, playing, until you experience, either directly or indirectly, your first phenomenon of racism. And then you wake up to the reality that there are two different worlds. One uh, particular occasion, I grew up in California at a time when they were taking a lot of students from the black community and they were trying to uh, bus us out uh, to other white schools and uh, we were bused out to an affluent white school. And uh, I developed some friendships there, which uh, I appreciate because I was able to develop friendships uh, across cultural lines. And I had uh, one particular friend in middle school and uh, I went over to his house And we shared together, and I was able to spend the night at his house. And uh, so we had an activity the next day. And so the plan was that he was going to come to our house and spend the night at my house. And he was absolutely and positively petrified. He did not want to stay in my community amongst my friends. And uh, my mother had to drive him all the way back home at 12 midnight. So he didn't stay? No, he did not stay. And that's when I was awakened Hmm. uh, to the reality of uh, of this world that something's different there's mm-hmm. something going on here yes okay. that there
2: was something different yeah. going on yeah okay
0: all right
2: yeah you- yeah you know um hmm. back when we having our conversation in the, the doctoral seminar and i had mentioned to you about us you know navigating two different worlds yeah. and i invited you to come take a, a walk right right and it was more than just a walk it was just to come experience and so i've done this several times with uh uh, our church My church used to be a church that was A great deal more racially diverse than it is now mm-hmm. And so I would uh, Quite often take some of my White members out with me And just say just walk with me Just mm-hmm. Go in the restaurant with me Go watch as I walk through the department store You know I'm a mm-hmm. large black guy mm-hmm. Six foot mm-hmm. Two hundred and some pounds and, uh- <laughs> and
0: radiantly charming Right And devastatingly handsome Well I appreciate right. that yeah, come on
2: So, uh, you know, there's times I I get looked at, you know, Mm -hmm. differently. Uh, But I think that one of the things is probably a common thread that goes through the black community. Uh, All parents love our children and raise them to avoid criminalization and to avoid uh, the police. I'm not saying all police are bad. Just just stay out of jail. Mm -hmm. Do what you're supposed to do. So we teach our kids how to obey the law and how not to get arrested. Mm -hmm. But I think in the black community, we also have to teach our children how to get arrested. Mm. And what I mean by that is I've I've had to sit down with my kids and say, if you get pulled over for speeding, uh, keep your mouth shut. Uh, The first thing you're gonna do is roll down your window, take both of your hands Mm. and put them outside the window and just sit there. Until the police officer comes. I don't care what we'll color the police officer is. Sure. Until they come. Sure. Then when they ask you to do something, repeat back to them what they asked you to do. Mm. Then tell them you get ready to do it. Right. Right. Because we've all seen that, you know, miscommunication, um, threats, perceptions leads right. to things right. that, uh, that can be troubling. Yeah, right. And I can't afford for that to be troubling one time because mm-hmm. I, I love my children. So I think that's one thing that's very but different. That's, so that, I mean, that...
0: That rattles me, okay because the point that we share is we, we all want to protect our children, right we all want our children to stay safe and and out of trouble, right but those are not conversations I had with my sons they' are just not yeah. i 've taught them to respect the, 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 the police we We have an inherent trust of the police, right. and maybe that is a major difference, so that in fact. Even this week, we have some law enforcement officers in our church who I absolutely adore. And I think that they serve and they protect and they have integrity and they they have the best uh, interest of the community in mind. I know their hearts. I even talked to the police chief. The police chief of Johns Creek goes to our our church. And I talked to him this week and and I said, look, I'm thinking about you. And how are you doing? What's going on? And he's telling me about the protests where he's kneeling down praying with he he is sensitized to the plight of the those who are protesting and he I said so he and he said you need to know something, Sean. This is a direct quote, and then I asked him for permission. <laughs> right. I said he said direct quote, he said, um, I absolutely condemn this and, and all the officers I know who work with me do and we talk about how to improve this. Right. right? And and the, the fact is that's the, the major narrative that I carry around in me and my sons know. That's not the narrative that you know and to have to teach your sons. And that is a stark difference.
1: Let, let me pick it back on that because he's absolutely yeah, right. right. Because in typical African-American household, you know the talks as a parent, as any parent has to have. You have certain talks that you have with your kids. Right. It is absolutely imperative hmm. that you have the talk with your African-American child on how to handle when you're followed around in the story. And you don't have to be big and black for that. Right. Uh, Or when you're stopped by the police and you teach your children at least I taught my my children I have a 19 year old son 16 year old daughter how to respect uh, The police officers, but sometimes there's this preconceived notion that uh, if you're driving while black in a particular kind of car in a particular Neighborhood you can be pulled over Uh, Everyone gets pulled over. I understand that but you never know at what juncture or what point of time that that might turn uh, very difficult. You don't know what kind of officer that you're going to get. You don't know if uh, like what's going on right now uh, police officers are on edge mm-hmm. and and I understand why they're sure. on edge sure. right. uh, but there's some preconceived ideas and notions in the fabric of this uh, country that kind of categorize your child to look like a criminal and so sometimes they will approach you with that defensive stance and everything that you do uh, will determine how that uh, engagement is going to go, right. uh, and sometimes there are some points that no matter what you do, mm-hmm. that is going to be a bad uh, engagement. But uh, as we yeah. continue, we'll yeah. talk. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And there's this.
0: You, know, you you bring up a point, and we we may be we may be off script, freestyle. But I'm I'm just listening to you. And the fact is, I'm also hearing the echoes of my conversation with with our police chief, and he he, he brings up a similar point, and that is, okay, so um, anxiety can beget anxiety too. And so in the current context of peaceful protests, there is the possibility of that turning south in a hurry. And so the anxieties of the officers who are there to actually ensure that right to speak freely right. are at a heightened anxiety. And then one trigger here, and then one trigger here, and then and there's, there's a situation, right? So the, this is part of why I think this is important to present a non-anxious conversation about these realities so we can be awake to them, so that we can be aware. Um, so I do have a couple other questions, though. Let's move, move along here. So let's talk just a minute about, we know what, co- what overt r- racism could look like. Right. I mean, that is something like you described. You're confronted with this, um, this reality that your boyhood friend doesn't want to be at your house because he's scared to death. That's, that's overt. I mean, you can't hide that, right? Um, but what is covert racism? Describe covert re- racism that may be more difficult for others to see as
2: it's happening. Yeah. So, um, let me use, an, uh, I'll use another word. So, I'm, I'm taking the True. current pandemic situation, mm-hmm. right? So, we have the COVID virus. And so, let's just assume uh, that racism, and I like to, I know we don't have really the time to do that here, but there's racism, there's prejudice, there's bigotry, there's ignorance there's a whole scale of behaviors and sometimes wait, wait, so give me a minute i mean give me give me 30 seconds on that give me 30 seconds each i mean well break I, that down so please. i'll just i'll say so for example like when i was doing my research i realized that it because your your doctoral research is in it, this category exactly race right. reconciliation racism that that's a word that nobody wants to Word that tag of being a racist. Mm-hmm. So when I began to present my ter- material in class, what mm-hmm. I was going to do, I would use the word racist, and I could immediately see, the, particularly the white students, feel it. just feel it mm-hmm. because, uh, and the truth is, I didn't think none of them were a racist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I, I'm not around most people who, all my friends, the people I move and have my been with, mm-hmm. I don't see any racist. Uh, people might experience, and I think this is important, the question you asked, I think racial microaggressions is what I experience more so than outright racism. Racial microaggressions, right? Yeah. And so I'll give an example. So going back to the virus thing, some people can have COVID and they'll say you asymptomatic, Mm -hmm. which means you have the virus, you just don't have any symptoms. symptoms. So you can actually have been exposed to racism, whether that comes from the uh, nuclear family, uh, that that origin of birth narrative, mm-hmm. uh, where you grew up, demographics, ge- geographics, all those different things. Mm-hmm. So, they can, you can be exposed to racism, and actually carry around in you mm-hmm. some racist thoughts or reflections, mm-hmm. some unexamined assumptions. Exactly, right, right. That may be because I'm glad to
0: hear you say that right. you're in a classroom with white folk and you realize. They're not racist. I don't think they're racist. No. But there is like a viral presence right. that can be in us two or three layers beneath our consciousness. Exactly. And a, an
2: unexamined assumption about the stacking of people's value and worth. Right. Okay. i give you a perfect example. Yeah. I won't say the conference, but there was a large conference that was here in Atlanta. Okay. And uh, I was invited, I never really go to, I hadn't really, it's not really my fellowship, whatever, uh, churches that we associate with, but I had a friend that went who worked for them and gave mm. me and said, if you go, I will get you a VIP pass. Mm. So my wife and I go, and we're both interested. I had to go to one entrance to get the VIP pass, my wife had to go to another entrance. So I get in first, mm. I get my goodie bag and all that stuff, and I'm all standing the swag. there, get your got swag. my name tag yeah. on, the top right. it says VIP. Mm. So I'm standing there in the lobby. I will just say that in the lobby at this conference, it was predominantly white. Okay. There was only a few minorities, non-blacks that were there. Mm-hmm. I was one of them sitting in the lobby. This is a racial microaggression. People would come up to me while I'm standing there and go, excuse me, where's the restroom? Mm. Mm. Somebody said, uh, can you go over and get that trash up?
0: No kidding. Okay. And a I Microaggression.
2: So I, on,
0: the, on the radar screen, they don't, they're not thinking. Right. And that's the problem. They're not thinking. And you even have a banner that says VIP. Right. They didn't see it. As if we
2: need a sign. Right. But and so they're called microaggressions because they're little bitty slights. Yeah. And so, Hmm. racist thought would you know be some extreme group that does something that's really overt. It's people that don't know that do and say Hmm. things that are really small. But it's like getting cut with a razor. Yeah, like a you know, like paper cut. So, yeah little a paper tiny, cut. Like a Look, paper so it doesn't impact you so much, yeah. um, but there, there were five people that, before the conference even started, mm-hmm. it was five people who misidentified me as a mm-hmm. janitor, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as a person who was uh, popping the popcorn. Yeah, right, um, okay. You know, th- those, yeah. so those are things that, those are everyday slights. And that's in the soil, or the soul. Right. I
0: mean, that's in, that's the, that's the infection right. that, that that's not recognized
1: or acknowledged or, or even owned mm-hmm. deliberately, but it's there. Well, right. I okay. was gonna make that point. Yeah. Um, microaggressions, things that you experience, overt or covert, all of these are manifestations, as you say, of what's in the core DNA of this country. Now, uh, you grow up black, Uh, the dualism that you have to grow up with is, I love my country, but I know my country's history. And then I know the perspective from which my country operates. So you have to love it. You kind of almost love it and hate it at the same time. And so there, there is a, there's a, a psychosis in its ontogeny and in it, its very beginning that uh, manifests itself in these, all of these events and things like that. And so it becomes psychological. And like you said, it's underneath layers and it affects everybody, which is why you can have someone who authentically is not racist and contribute to this atmosphere of racism. You can um, uh, find somebody who's African American and also contribute to this idea of racism, either in terms of how they interact with other people or in terms of your own self-insecurity that you have to constantly fight uh, time and time and through situations. And uh, in, in your attempts to make achievements and accomplishments uh in this world you have to the higher you go you know you're you're the only black one in the class and then everyone is looking at you differently um I probably shouldn't say this Can, can can I can I confess my sin <laughs>
0: yes come on how long has it been since your last confession now, now,
1: David? I, I used come to on. be a lot more radical and, and jesus has, has blessed my heart right. <laughs> but uh when i was a student uh in in seminary we used to go to the library and i won't mention it wasn't at the school that i attended it we went to another school and uh a group of friends and i we used to gather around we used to play the move the white people around the room game oh my god <laughs> <laughs> talking about
2: michael
1: you gotta explain the rules uh, Okay. I'm, saying, move the white I, I'm sorry because their... I don't need to be saying this, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> because it's so bad. It whoa, whoa, is so bad. No, but uh, we w- we would sit at a table with some other students and see how long it would take them to get up and move uh, okay. and go yeah. somewhere else. Okay. Yeah. And uh, just as evidence, yeah, uh, yeah, forgive yeah. me for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm yeah. just, okay. But I, but but I just want to illustrate and make the point that this is a a daily yeah. phenomenon and it's an energy. Between, between us,
0: right? It's an unseen force between us that until we well, and it, in in every in every conceivable way, it's it is a spiritual journey of blindness to seeing, to sightedness, yep. right? It's from from I don't see that, and most I guarantee you, most of the the people in in well in this church, I'll just speak for the people I love and right. know. I guarantee you, we don't think of ourselves as racist, and and would not ever overtly, deliberately, intentionally say things that would be a Would you a, a microaggression? Micro and they are not racist, That's but can. Per, and I am not racist, but I can participate in microaggressive right. behaviors. Okay, so let me ask something else. Look well, like okay. you about to say something. You about to no, say, don't, say don't something. Okay, let so me ask something else. Uh-huh. So, every, so people talk about a watershed moment. And, you know, and one of those is like the one you, you said, your, your friend goes home. or, um, you know, What was a watershed moment for you where you realize, okay, now this could be them, it could be me, because I could be contributing to this kind of oversensitivity. Maybe, I'm, maybe it's me interpreting it. But there's a moment when it's a watershed and you realize, okay, you can't put frosting on that Right. You, you can't camouflage that. You can't pretty that up. Yes. Can you tell me something like that that's happened in your journey?
1: Um, I used to work at the uh, airport, Los Angeles International Airport, for a summer job while I was a college student. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't have a car. I would drive uh, my mom's van go to work and I would give a ride to my cousin who also worked there. He was a security guard. And uh, we parked always in this large airport, parking lot. There's there's nothing but cars around. And so uh, I'm in my car and I'm driving out and I notice that I'm being followed by a car. Now, first of all, I'm thinking, okay, somebody's following me. I didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. And so I just had to have a sensitivity to that. And so I go through and I pay the uh, ticket uh, for the parking. And then as I come out in the street, I notice uh, one police car directly in front, uh, one to the side and one to the other side. And so I said, okay, well, I'm not speeding. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm getting off of work. And so I pulled my car into the street, and immediately they just kind of zoomed in and started screaming at me over the, uh, the speaker. And, it's, you know, like you're saying, put your hands outside of the car. Do, do all this. And, you know, in, in, in that moment, you almost forget your training because you're afraid. What in the world is going on here? And so uh, they, they rush up to the car. And they open um, the passenger side and they take my cousin who had a security guard uniform on and they slam him to the ground, literally slam him to the ground. Uh, and then uh, they tell me to get out. I get out and I'm staring at the wrong end of police guns aimed at my chest. And my hands are in the air. And they say, get down on the ground, spread out. Now here I am, I'm spreading out in the middle of the street with all of these guns pointed at me And it's always the same thing every time I get stopped. This was a watershed time, but it was there's a robbery in the neighborhood and you fit the description. That's all it is. And then they came to take information and had the unmitigated gall, the asinine audacity to ask me what my street name was. What your street name was. And I said, you know, I wanted to say what gives you the idea that I have a street name, but I was so afraid. I couldn't say a, say a word, and the, the killing thing of all of this, I went home, and I was frustrated, and my older brother, I told my older brother about it, he says, don't worry about it, it happens to me all the time. That was a watershed. It's watershed. It's watershed. Thank you, David. Yeah, yeah
2: I'll, I'll share mine as well, and what I'm going to do is share a, a few, a thread, but I'm going to work backwards. Okay. So uh, that same thing happened to me my senior year in college at West Point. I was uh, three weeks from graduating and being commissioned an officer in the Army. At West Point Military Academy. Exactly. Your third year. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was with three. I played football at Army. It was three other football uh, players. We went to a sports bar to watch uh, the games that day. We Mm -hmm. walked out. Police showed up, did exactly what Damon just said, exactly word for word, on the ground, face, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they said that they got word there was four guys there, and my friend had a BMW that he paid cash for and they thought it was stolen. So that's one. The first time anybody's ever used the N-word to me mm. was in a group Bible study my freshman year at West Point. Uh, in the group, called, said that to me in a study group. Mm. That was my freshman year. Uh, so, What possible context
0: could there have remotely been for, in the midst of a Bible study that, for that to
2: emerge? Can you say more about that? What? You know, um, no, I don't know other than the fact that, you know, this person uh, grew up in an area where they, apparently, that was okay. Okay. And so, right, okay. Right. Uh, you, your, your you know. Thr- your thread. ass Yeah, thread. So, so, I'm going to go all the way back. So, there's been right. a lot of other things. Right. Like, I write them down. I share these stories because mm-hmm. the stories are very powerful. Right. But the watershed moment for me, mm-hmm. uh, believe it or not, was when I was four years old. Uh, really too young to know anything, but there was, uh, I was imprinted with, with this thought. So I don't share this a lot because it's, it's, a, a it's a big watershed moment. It's very emotional. Mm-hmm. My mom, 26 years old, my dad's 27 year old. They met in college. They had been married. They had me, I was four. My brother was three. It was a Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. My mom went to church for a women's program in the afternoon. She didn't come back home. I remember sitting in the living room with my father and brother playing Cowboys and Indians. The door opened up, it was two police, and they informed my dad that my mom was killed in a car accident. My dad immediately walked into his bedroom and we just sat there in their living room with the police for I don't know how long, and then my dad had to come and explain to us uh, that our mother had died. He was very, I had never seen my dad cry, I had never seen him that emotional, uh, and he was trying to explain to us And we kept, as little boys, we'd go, well, she'd be home later. Mm. For a week, we would say, she'd be home later, she'd be home later. And, of course, she never did. And what happened was my grandmother then later pulled me aside. And this conversation she had, she had repeatedly throughout my life. uh, Because the person who killed her was escaping the police. Mm. Hit her, killed her, but he got off Mm. because he was white and wealthy. So my grandmother came to me and she says, I'm four, five, four kindergarten. Mm -hmm. You have got to be careful of white people. Mm. And right then. Because if they can get away with murder, imagine what else they can do. Mm -hmm. So that becomes a lens for me through which to elementary everything. Everything. So think so for for white people, they either affirmed or denied. You that, know that litmus. That yeah. Yep. You know, as yep. I went through life, I would just, right. and I still do, unfortunately.
0: Sure, sure. So, thank you for sharing that. That's not easy. Mm-mm. These many years later, right? yeah. I'm yep. certain. So, yeah. so here's the thing: I, I craft all these questions because of my curiosities of what I'm missing in my own blindedness, mm-hmm. in my own spiritual journey to see, to see. Um, But there may be questions that I did not ask that I need to be asking. And so I'm I'm like, so what, what do you wish that the white community could understand about the black experience, understanding that you're not talking to a representative of the entire white community, and understanding that you're not speaking as a representative of the whole black community, but what do you wish that the white community could understand
1: that might move us a little bit? that our experiences are different and there's this fallacy contemporarily that we all stand on level ground and we don't that we all start from an even place uh if you would at least acknowledge rather than cover over the history of this country and how it still has present and current ramifications um at least to be open to hear the conversation and not shut it down as soon as and and then take it personally and say oh uh, you' you're, you're trying to brand me as a racist no i 'm not trying to brand you as a racist i'm trying to uh communicate with you the reality that you may not have access to uh because of privilege and again, like i said you you don't have to be racist to benefit from privilege because it's systemic if we understood that this problem is systemic uh and whenever things happen like george floyd uh tamir rice or or call the Roll, uh they're seen as episodic and we, we we get all in a huff and then when the news cycle is done uh then we go back to our individual and our personal lives uh, and we in, insulate ourselves but, but if we understood that this is systemic That arresting, as they should have Arresting those police officers Does not solve the problem And uh, I wish we could look at it from yeah. face value uh, But let me interrupt you for sure. a minute Because you're,
0: you're telling the truth here and the, the, But another truth is this There are words yeah. that are conversation stoppers For a good number of the white community Okay, I mean, let's just say that. Right. When, when you use the word privilege, right. I know what people who I love and serve and care for and are hearing, mm-hmm. and I know what they're saying in their mind. Hang on, seriously? Right. Privilege, because I was poor. Right. I was poor growing up, they're saying, and like, I had to work for everything that I've got, so don't tell me that I'm privileged. Tell me, i worked for everything that I've got, right? and they are telling the truth from their, from their experience, and you started this by saying, I wish we knew that we have different experiences, because their experience is, I've worked for everything I've got. Right. So what do you mean, and you know where I am on this, so I'm asking you to help me divide the word of truth here. There's, what do
1: you mean by this? There's something in the Constitution that's called unalienable rights, hmm. and uh, this is what is promised by the Constitution of this country, and according to the Constitution of the country, that this has been given to me not by the Constitution, but by by God. God. That's right. But by God. And so, you know, you want to take the word privilege out, you, you can. Just grant me the freedoms that have been proposed by this country. And if you look at every era there is some part of that that has been either limited or denied. Uh, um, uh, I don't fault anybody for working hard and and doing all that and coming through poverty, uh, but you didn't have to do it and face racism at the same time. You didn't have to face redlining at the same time. You did not have to face housing discrimination at the same time. And, 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 to make accomplishments, you have to be history-making in your accomplishments. Can we? Can we? Unpack,
0: I don't want to interrupt sure, you, flow, sure. but you're using words that are important words. Okay. And I want us to talk for just a minute about redlining. I want us to. I mean, I was talk about no, that. No, no, go ahead. Because the the for me a few years ago, this is where the the word privilege changed for me. Be, where it be, I began to understand you cannot get wealth generationally wealthy in this country. You, we have the greatest economy in the history of humankind. It's built upon a few significant principles that get that wealth built. But you cannot become generationally wealthy where, where you know one generation may not go to school, but the next generation does, but they got to pay for it. And the next generation gets to go, but maybe they don't have to pay for it. That generational change, the moving of the needle, you don't get that without either property or education and no access no limited access i mean and unlimited access to those things right, right. and the conversation about redlining began to open up for me that there were deliberate times at the early part of last century yeah. where city fathers would gather i was about to say city fathers and mothers but at the time it was city fathers right let's just be honest. would would be in conversation with bank leaders to say in our city which which parts of the city have the highest value and what that really is translated to mean is where do these folks live and where do the other folks live and we will we will give low-interest loans to these families who live in this area and literally on a map would draw a red line around this area so as to deny the low-interest loans to anyone coming from this property area because the legitimacy of that is well it's not a good investment I mean, the, the, you know, they're, they're, you know, we're, we're looking and surveying and recognizing that's just not. And so the legitimacy that gets documented and put into practice mm-hmm. is that we grant for here and not for here. Right. And in so doing, you can purchase and sell and gain equity. And if you can't do that, you can have babies and they can grow up and have babies and they grow up and have babies. And eventually the ground is not level, Right. right? That changed the whole conversation for me because it, it made me recognize that there, that there is the possibility that some are not only not. Now, does it mean that there are those who are from that generational line who don't work hard? No. They can work and put into practice the same kind of ethic that those who have not come from that, uh, that uh, oppressed or limited or controlled ex- experience have. But yet, if they succeed, they come to a ceiling, right? So, continue, I, I just wanted to stop and unpack redline because you blew through like a, like a preacher on a run, okay? So, no, no, but either one of you, but the point being, we use words that we have come to use comfortably because we understand what we mean by that. What we don't mean is white people, we want you to feel guilty about this. So tell me why. Do black, do black people want white people to feel guilty no. about what no. they have and what you don't have?
2: No, and I think, you know, when I understand that the word white privilege, it, that just, that's a shutdown for conversation. Right. So, uh, and I think, so one thing I would think is this, um, that's not a, a label, if like if you're a white person and you hear that, and, and you go, you, you see it through the lens of, well I grew up poor and I work hard, then that comment would not be for you. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you can assume responsibility. Mm-hmm. Like we're saying, I'm not speaking for all black people here. You're not speaking for all white people. Also, also I don't assume responsibility mm. for all that black people do well and don't do. Mm-hmm. I actually consider myself privileged. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not white, okay. but I happen to grew up in a family with parents and grandparents uh, that worked hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had a grandfather that was born 1898, only had an eighth grade education and managed to leave an inheritance for my family. Mm. He died in 1987. My youngest daughter just graduated from Mercer Mm -hmm. two years ago that some money he left paid Mm. her tuition. Mm. So I feel privileged. Uh, And his father and grandfather were slaves. I feel like I do have some privilege, that I can embrace okay. that, but I can also see the opposite. Uh, I, I think uh, the, the challenge with their word is is, is that it doesn't mean, um, it's not drilled down to just an economic one. Mm-hmm. I think that's too small. So right. if you begin to say, well, I'm poor and I work hard, it's, you know, you could be black or white, simultaneously be poor, mm-hmm. and yet and still. That white poor person might get a job that that black poor person did not. There was a time hmm. that you could take a, a white person and black person and both of them be poor and one couldn't vote.
0: Yeah. That's
2: right. You see what I'm saying? So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There, so it's beyond economics. It's beyond, it's but beyond economics. economics has a, a, powerful, Absolutely. a powerful impact on the conversation we're having. Right. So you go, you know, if you do go back to the, poverty, to the property conversation, though, right. and if in most places public education is funded by property taxes. Exactly we got the best schools right. in the state and, and I'd say the nation right, right. here, right. right? But there are places in our state and around our metro uh, city that they're funded in the same way right. and they can't afford the supplies that are in, needed in the classroom. Mm-hmm. The teachers are using their own low income to pay for those supplies right. and it's, it's all part of this conversation we're having. So,
2: so if the goal is not to feel guilty about that, what is the goal? I I would say, I'll just tell you another brief story here. Mm -hmm. We were in class. I don't even know if you remember this. I'm talking about my research. I'm talking about doing race, whatever. Mm -hmm. The room went quiet. Mm -hmm. People was presenting what they were thinking about doing research. on. So once you decide you're going to spend the next three, four years reading books, all in that same topic. Mm -hmm. So the room went quiet. Uh, Stephanie Patterson Mm -hmm. in the classroom stood up. And she said, I see that when Ben presented, the room went quiet. Everybody, some people talked about end of life. Some people talked about human sermons and everybody was engaged. And Ben talked about race and the room went quiet. Mm-hmm. She said, it went quiet because what you heard him say was that the people in the room were racist. Then she turns to me and said, Ben, is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. And I said, no. She said, I didn't think you were. I don't want to speak for you, but I knew that's not what you're saying. Okay. All right. She says, what I think you're saying is, she said, it's not enough to be anti-racist, not racist. It's not enough to be that way. She said, I think Ben is asking us to be an ally. Mm. That's the difference. Mm. It's one To that be they, an ally. ally.
0: To not be not racist. Right. But to be more than that. Right. To be, to be an ally. What is an ally? What you What's see that? a lot What's of, that,
2: yeah. think about some of the, the, the riots and right. stuff mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. see protesting yep. that's yep. going on right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you turn on the TV. I, I look. I might would expect in the past to see uh, a bunch of black people. There's a lot of white people. A there. lot of That's white right. people That's that right. are down and there. And so,
0: part of what we, we're talking about with my sons, right, in our conversation at our home, what we're talking about is um, let's not deny privilege. Call it what you want to. Call it privilege. Call it grace. Call it blessing. Call it whatever you want to call it. Right. We have, we have a step ahead, of beyond other people mm-hmm. in the world. But don't despise. The privilege you use it right. Exactly. I think when when I hear you talk about allies, that's what I hear is right. to we don't you, you don't need people to despise their privilege, but to recognize it with eyes wide open and ask, to whom much is given, you know, much is required. What is required then of me in my unique space that God has given me, right to to become ally to use to leverage my privilege in order to broaden the conversation. Right.
2: You know? Yeah.
0: So I've had a
2: number of, you know, white friends, peers, ministry peers call me Mm. and, uh, and say, you know, they've been thinking about me, praying for me, but at the same time, they want to know how how can they come stand with me? Okay. How can they read the things I'm reading? Mm. Begin Mm. to uh, look at the movies I watch, you know, just begin to like really allies, you know, come right up next to me.
0: Yeah, and, we're talking all the let's time. Let's walk well together. Well, I'm going to take a walk. Let's talk about But I'm, I mean uh, metaphysically, physically, all I'm talking it. about symbolically, because I've talked to both of you about joining our interfaith alliance into a dialogue yep. that continues, mm-hmm. yes. a conversation that doesn't stop. Right. Rhonda from time to time will recommend to me a Netflix series that y'all are watching. I'm like, I've never heard of this. So of course you had. It's,
2: it's on black Netflix. I didn't
0: know there's a black Netflix. Yeah, it's on there. It's you know? right. So yeah. to, to, to be sensitized and tenderized in the heart, to, right. to walk alongside, yeah. that's good. Yeah. All right, so here's what I was going to do. Uh-huh. I was going to, I think I'm going to move along here. I was going to get you to react to a few of these things, but we've already covered them. Yeah. We've covered a lot of these things. Here's right. what I want you to react to, though, because um, so these are things that white people say, Right? I'm not racist, some of my best friends are black. <laughs> right? Yeah. What, what do you, how do you react to that one?
1: I don't know, I think sometimes some people just don't know what to say. Yeah. And I think there's an awkwardness uh, because of the nature and the climate of race in this country. Yeah. And I think there are some people who authentically want to be able to reach out and, and connect with you. And mm-hmm. you know, you kind of learn to take some of these statements with a grain of salt and, yeah. and just move past it. Sure. Uh, but there's always this sense of I have to have at least one black person in the office or one black friend and this is my mascot and so mm-hmm. this is validation mm-hmm. that I am not a racist.
0: Tokenism. D-
1: yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of what I think of is uh, tokenism when that statement is made. I don't yeah. know about how, Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 the example I just used yeah, about right.
0: being an ally right, you know right, it's ally.
2: like yeah. I, I'm not around anybody really that I, I think is a racist mm-hmm. and uh, but not many of those anti racists are Our actually allies. my allies. Yeah, right, right, right. And so that's the thing I think about when I hear that. It's like, you know, I want people, more allies, yeah. to move over. Another word that I hear sometimes is, and this one
0: I used to say uh-huh. is, I want to be colorblind.
2: Yeah.
0: I don't see color. But that's A, a lie. Right. <laughs> right? It? But it's B, n- not better. Right. I-, I don't want to be colorblind. Right. right? Ben, I mean, David, I want to see you in all of your humanness, right? right. I want to see you in all of your blackness, right. in the strength of your journey that you've made, in the wounds that you are willing to share so that we actually improve our species. Right. So colorblind, is that, anything else you'd add? Yeah,
1: I, I mean, it, we can be different, we can disagree, um it is not my job uh to make you curve to my differences, but I want you to see them. See me. Yeah. And I want to be able to disagree uh with you, even though we have uh different experiences mm-hmm. and different cultural experiences, because uh a comment like that that assumes that there's some kind of standard and there's always some type of comment or concept in this culture that there's a standard. And that you don't measure up to that standard or who you are is not that. And so let, let me create colorblindness, uh, which is a denial of who I am. And it's like you don't have to accept me, but uh, uh, see my color, but don't dehumanize my color yes. is,
2: is the idea. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good, that's good. If you, if you think about it, um, would, you know, colorblindness in the context of that question is talking about race. Mm-hmm. But what about, like, if you were really colorblind. Like, does somebody want to be that? Hmm. Like, you know, just... Like, That's good.
0: Yeah, just, That's right. Nobody... There are glasses you can buy now Right. to make me see, you want all, see all the, the hues. Right. All the hues that Nobody God has. Nobody wants had. to be colorblind. God thought all these hues were a good idea. Exactly. Why would you want to? God, we got to stop right now. Yeah. <laughs> just eat some bread and drink some... But we're not going to because I want to move this somewhere else. Okay. Beauty
1: right. of diversity. It yeah. is.
0: It is the image of god
1: yeah
0: is the image of god yeah all right so on our way there now let's talk preaching a little okay. bit let's talk preaching we're preachers, preachers yeah. we are, are stewards of the word yeah. and we're going to have a little little preach off not a preach off really mm-hmm. not a preach off uh, i think i'd be preached off this stage <laughs> but i want to have just a little a blitz little 1 minute sermons because here's what i'm thinking the first thing i'm thinking i'll get us warmed up guys is this this conversation fits so Perfectly in our conversation about resurrection, because what we've been saying is resurrection is not a one-time event, but an all-the-time invitation to a way of life, which means which means that there is required of me a daily dying. What must die in me? What patterns, what lenses? must be removed what filters must be taken off that I might see and hear the kingdom emerging around me and to see the image of God that is around me constantly right so what must I die to so that the Christ can can raise me to new life and as I think about that the scriptures are crammed with example after example of a call to something better than what we're talking about because we have hopes in our leaders and we put hopes in legislation and all of that is necessary and right and good mm-hmm. because sometimes justice requires uh, torquing the system and, and changing it so that the, the systems that are in place move toward justice right. and correct some things that have been out of, out of sync. Yeah. Yeah. But our hope is not in legislation and our hope is ultimately not in the leaders we choose. It is my conviction to my soul that our hope is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is why, for me, the answer is for the living body of Christ, the church, to lead the way in liberating ourselves from this perpetuating cycle of misunderstanding and hate and microaggressions and in-your-face aggressions and... So as you're thinking about scriptures and all the places that kind of emerge in you that, that cry that out as a, as a truth, what emerges? And we'll just kind of go around the horn a little bit. What, what comes to mind? And give us a little something.
2: Yeah, so I'll start here. Uh, give you an example. My son is very mechanical. So I told him one day, I want you to clean the carpet. He had a carpet cleaner. It didn't work. I gave him the money to go rent one. I come back home. He's take the whole thing apart. Mm-hmm. He likes to figure stuff out. He fixed his phone, he fixes his computer, he took the whole carpet cleaner apart and put it back together. So he wanted to figure out how it worked. And so he so I'm saying that to say like in Revelation there's this apocalyptic vision Revelation mm-hmm. 7 that says, you know, there every tribe, every nation, throne, everybody's there worshiping, yelling salvation is to our God. Mm-hmm. That's the end game, yes. right? Yes. So if we want to see how this thing works, you reverse engineer it and you go back To get there. To get there. How do we get there? We know this apocalyptic vision that we're going to all be together. We're going to all be worshiping God. Mm -hmm. How do we get there? And I think part of it is when uh, the disciples come to Jesus, Luke chapter 11, verse 1. This is not in every manuscript, but they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And he said, you know, hallowed be your name. Mm -hmm. You know, you praise God. May your kingdom come on what? On earth earth, as as it is in heaven. Right here. Right. On earth as it is. So we start as it is in heaven, yeah. and so we're backward from there. exactly. So our yeah. goal is yeah. to bring heaven to earth and to get there in every encounter. In every encounter, in we every, do. Yes. How but do we do that? All
1: right. I, I love that passage because, uh, and and you're right, and 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 when you look at those, those are actually. Uh, injunctives and not descriptives. Right. He says, let your name be sanctified. Right. And the implication of the Sermon on the Mount is let your name be sanctified through me. Right. In other words, let me make you famous by how I die to myself right. and do what's at the core of this Christianity. Yeah. And if I'm letting your name be sanctified, then your will will be done and your kingdom is coming as we're making our trek yeah. to the uh Revelation chapter seven. You right. say it's not a preacher, so I'm gonna try not to preach. Come on. Uh, but 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 but, but the core of this, what brings to my mind is Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting with verse 4, because at the core of all of our Christianity is relationship. God designed us to be relating beings and to relate with him and to love him. And he said, the way that you love him is to love everybody that's around you. He says, uh, shama Israel, adonai Hear, O Israel, mm. the Lord our God is one. Uh, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy what heart, soul, mind, and strength and wow. Jesus. Asked to that Leviticus chapter nineteen, oh, Leviticus, where he said, "You love okay. your neighbor as yourself." This is how you do right. Deuteronomy chapter six and verse four, and, and, and Leviticus chapter nineteen is in the context of how you love each other. He says, "When you uh, harvest the fields, do not um, uh, uh, harvest the corners. Uh, let the poor come and glean, so they'll have something to eat." In other words, leveraging yeah. your uh, um, your step ahead, right. yes. if yes. that makes any sense. I <laughs> so I, I saw
0: what you
1: did there. Yeah, yeah you just so let me stop it's yes, you know, right. okay it's so
0: good put down. It is, it is an awareness that I've got a field and I've got edges of the field that I could harvest and put up in the, in the uh, double deep freezer out in my garage <laughs> and store it up for when I get extra hungry or wow. I can recognize I've got enough and I can leave the edges of the field as not suggested but commanded by the liberating God of of the Torah to care for those who have not. I think about uh, John 17. Uh, I think about the prayer of Jesus. This is the longest running monologue of Jesus in the entire New Testament. It is the longest stretch of Jesus just talking the whole time and it's in a prayer and his subject is unity. His prayer, the prayer, the, the the prayer that he prays in the garden for his followers is that they would be one. Lord, make them one as you and I are one, as I am in you and you are in me and I in them. Make them in you and you and make it one so that there is perfect unity. Right. And for him to pray that, he's aware of how diverse their group is. Mm-hmm. He knows that sleeping away from the, that falling asleep right away from him is Matthew, who's a tax collector, yeah. who works and gets a paycheck from the Empire. Talk yeah. about privilege, talk about a step ahead.
2: Right.
0: But he knows he's sleeping right next to Simon the Zealot, yeah. yes, sir. whose job it is to overthrow his boss, right, sir. the Empire. Mm-hmm. And they're eating out of the same bread right. and cup. Right. And he knows there are the sons of thunder who have loud, boisterous presence, right? And he also knows there's John, who was so humble he didn't even mention his own name in his own gospel. <laughs> and he knows around that table, they can go in splintered directions. And his only
2: prayer, Lord, make them one. Make them one. Yeah. You better preach. Come on. <laughs> yeah. And he even says in that same passage, well, make them be one, so that the world will know that you sent me. Yes. <laughs> we, See, we are the church is supposed to be. A message to the world yes. that that Jesus yeah. is who Jesus is, right. and sometimes the church, since we're not one, we don't get it right. Mm-hmm. Not very attractive mm-hmm. to to people that mm-hmm. when it comes to letting them know that Jesus no. came. No, that's right. So that, this is why I'm
0: convinced. This is why I'm convinced that it is the church that has the answer. Right. Now the church has abused its capacity to right. represent the Father and to right. represent the Son. And we have actually been the perpetrators throughout our history yeah. of more oppression and less liberation. Right. But at the heart of it <laughs> is we have the capacity to model for the world what the kingdom is intended to look like right here, not later. And there's this, this Galatians passage where, where Paul is saying, or whoever wrote G- Galatians right. it's disputed, but Paul says, you know, He's aware that there are at least five groups that he knows hate each other. Right. He knows the Greeks don't like the Jews. And he knows the Jews have this thing against anybody who's not Jew. And he knows there are slaves right. who are either indentured service or flat-out slaves. And there are freed persons who used to be mm-hmm. slaves and now feel some kind of way about the slaves. And the slaves feel some kind of way about those who are no longer slaves. Right. And there are women who have no voice whatsoever. And so he says, in the spirit of that diversity and animosity and misunderstanding, he says, there is now therefore no longer any Greek or Jew, no slave, no free, no male,
2: no female, for all are in Christ, Christ Jesus. Yeah, beautiful testimony. You know, um, something that is uh, really, I had to go, there's times you preach for the people you got to preach to. And then there's times you got to go to the Word for yourself. For you. mm-hmm. And so, uh, so what really has been hanging out with me, for I haven't even preached it. I've just been reading it every day. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about this spiritual war. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you could take your stand. And, and so I guess part of my military likes the, the soldier part of that sure. as well. Sure. Uh, but in that, he says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And I got to pause because uh, I look at TV and I go, tell that to Ahmad Aubrey's mother that our battle's not flesh and blood when there's a father and son in the back of a pickup truck with a weapon chasing him. Uh, tell George Floyd and his family that it's not flesh and blood when they can see flesh and blood yeah. with a knee in the back of his neck and he dies. So when I read that, I go... It, and I think what as a black person is like there's flesh and blood and it ends up a lot of times being black bodies that's that's flesh and blood. And he says not of flesh and blood, he says, and then he goes on, he says, but the powers, the rulers, authorities in this dark world and spiritual evil in the heavenly realms. So it's a war on two fronts. It's physical, spiritual, it's temporal, it's eternal. And so he also says the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world, right? The <laughs> weapons we fight with have what? Divine power to demolish strongholds. And I believe in America, our problem with race, which has been called some of the original sin, is a yes. stronghold. Mm-hmm. And, and there's weapons that we have to use for rulers, powers, and authorities. So it's called voting. Mm-hmm. It's called protesting. Mm-hmm. That's what we do for the dark powers. Mm-hmm. But the spiritual part, Mm-hmm. And this is our responsibility as church leaders. What, right. So I might have some friends that say, I'm going downtown for the protest today, or I'm going to go round up people to vote. I go, okay, good, because that's the rulers, powers, and authorities in this dark world in which we live, and that's how you handle it. That's the weapons you use. Mm-hmm. But what about us, preachers and pastors yes. and prayer and fast and truth-telling? This, the, the courage to have this conversation mm-hmm. right here, mm-hmm. I, I'm glad mm-hmm. you're doing it's it, is that this is a weapon against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. So we, we got a battle on two fronts, and I just think we have not been able to figure out what weapons work and, and, yeah. and which ones don't, and misusing them when it really should be very yeah, simple. Yeah,
0: we're using the wrong weapons for the wrong battle.
2: Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And so the, the weapon of presence. The, yep. the capacity to abide in presence with one another. you know. So the Interfaith Alliance I'm telling you all about, we, right. we're talking about being present in some of these gatherings out of solidarity with those who come as a non-anxious presence in an anxious environment right. for both law enforcement and those who come to protest because they share the same sentiment yep. and are there to, to attend different energies. Right. But our presence as faith leaders is to... Well, to, encar- to make the word become flesh and yeah. dwell, right? So that we recognize and can see it and touch it and feel it. Yeah. All right, so then there's one more I wanna to get to. Um, and, and otherwise, this is gonna be like a five-part documentary, <laughs> right? Which would not be bad. Put it on Netflix. Put it on Netflix. <laughs> we can put it on Netflix and chill. No, I wouldn't say that. So we, what we have is in Luke, in, well, in part two of Luke, in Acts chapter nine, mm. there's this story, and Saul, who hated the Christians, hated them and was a, was a professional at persecuting them. He was out doing his thing and, and yet he sees Christ on the road and he's blinded by this vision of the risen Christ. Now he's blind and he's, he's taken to a house and another man, Ananias, right, is, is seeing in a vision that the Lord says to Ananias, I want you to go to, to, go to this house where Saul, is He's blind and I want you to lay your hands on him and I want you to heal him. Man, he's a, he, he, he loses it. He says, Lord, you know what this man can do. You know what kind of power this man has. You know what he can do to all of the folks like me, all those who believe in you and, and I'm, I'm afraid of him. And he hates me. And yet he went. He goes to the house where Saul is blind and... The text literally says, he walks in and the, and the text says, he walks in, lays his hands upon Saul and says, brother Saul, the Lord has sent me to restore your sight. And it, then it says in the next verse, and suddenly something like scales fall from his eyes and We always hear that story and we interpret it as, well, the scales fell from Saul's eyes because Saul was the one who was blind and scales fell from it. But if you look at the text, the reality is there's. it doesn't specifically say from whose eyes the scales fail. And what encourages me is in that text, when you get close enough to somebody, so close that you can actually touch them and call them brother, sister, then something like scales fall from your eyes and from their eyes and from all the eyes that have been blinded. And the thing that I guess I want us to move toward here in this moment is, the fact is we can talk up here all day long and we can legislate and and we can lead movements that are worthy and necessary, but until we get close enough to somebody to where it becomes not a cerebral issue in which we have all the logical answers to move forward, but it moves from from the head to the heart, and the heart breaks because you recognize the human being in front of you who has a set of experiences and who underneath that experience has the like a treasure hidden in a clay jar and has the image of God embedded in their DNA. When you get close enough to touch someone and call them brother and sister, then scales fall from everybody's eyes. And so what I want to encourage all of us to do and all of our people, and I've been talking to this about my family, to my family, and I want you, JCBC, beloved, I want you to ask yourself, who do I need to approach so closely that I can touch them and call them sister and brother? Because until I do, until I know somebody, And not not just their name, not just the person who works with you in the office and you know uh, what kind of weekend they had because they told you or that you know what their their favorite hobbies are, but until you get close enough to know what they're worried about with their child or what they're afraid of and what they're anxious about, until you know their story and they know yours, scales will remain on all of our eyes and we'll keep each other at this kind of arms distance and I want to encourage you to know somebody that you don't know yet. Approach somebody that you've kept at a distance who does not look like you who does not have the same terminology that you use to describe your condition in life and yet enter into a season of listening, humility and I think this is what guys this table is really all about I do, I really do because so we've been having communion every week distantly, you know, remotely and each week I I try to help us to focus on the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the cup in a specific way and I want you to know how I'm thinking about this bread and this cup today And because our folks at home they're going to have crackers, they're going to have coffee, they're going to be using something to commune with us and here's what I'm thinking, I am praying for a brokenness of heart for me Why, because I want to be sad? No. Why, because I feel guilty? No. But because Jesus said, until you break, you cannot be whole. Until you lose your life, you cannot find it. Until you fall, you cannot rise. And I'm praying that as I eat this bread and drink the cup, there will be a brokenness in me that allows the stories of other people to seep into my heart that I may actually be able to love more authentically, right? What are you thinking about as you come to the table?
1: I'm praying, uh, like Paul said in Corinthians, to be an agent of reconciliation. uh, Since he said he has committed to us this ministry of reconciliation. And that if I can be reconciled and bring reconciliation everywhere that I go, that we can create an atmosphere of reconciliation if God, would allow me to be a part of that.
2: Yeah, I think I'm praying uh, Ephesians 2. And um, it's one of my favorite passages, but I've been thinking a lot about the responsibility that I believe the church has. And there, I'm glad you've been preaching on the resurrection because it talks about the blood of Jesus there. And it says that his blood brings peace. And it says it removes the dividing wall of hostility and makes the two one and they become one new human, really one new mankind. Uh, that is my prayer that somehow Christ can begin to manifest himself uh, in our, our non gatherings, large gatherings, but in the small gatherings of people's homes um, that we can some way uh, bring peace through the blood of Jesus and be one. Then Lord, that is our prayer.
0: Right now, we pray for this bread we pray for this cup because we recognize that if we eat it and drink it in your name, we are literally consuming the awareness that we can embody in this world, everything that you died for. We pray that you would empower us to move our motivations into action, to strengthen our resolve, eating this bread and drinking this cup may firm our courage to hear and to listen in ways that we have not heard or listened before. May your transformation take place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so on the night he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And after he had given thanks, he, um, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat it and remember me. And then they passed a common cup because COVID hadn't come to town. So take a cup here, gentlemen, and remember that Jesus took a cup afterwards in the same way, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's a new arrangement. It's a new way to exist with one another and with me, and I pour it out in my blood. And as often as you drink this, remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. 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 I can't tell you how grateful I am for you, gentlemen. and I bless you and I pray for you and and I want to keep on with our walk together. Yeah? All right. So at this time, our prayer for you is that wherever it is that you go from this place, may the Christ go before you to prepare your way. May Christ go behind you on the days that you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step further at a time May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left abiding closer than even a sister or a brother May Christ go above you on the days when dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word May Christ go beneath you girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But mostly, may Christ go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm with his.